The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Well, if you were uh, with us last Sunday, you know that we finished our study of Matthew chapter 5. Spent some time last Sunday wrapping that chapter up. Thought about going into Matthew 6 this morning, but I think I'm going to wait and uh, we'll come back to that in uh, a few weeks, a couple weeks. Uh, it is Christmas. It is this time of year as we remember the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the birth of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It is really a staggering reality. Uh, if we pause to think about it, the fact that God became a man, that God stepped into time and eternity, that God added to his deity, humanity. And it is an incredible thing for us to consider this thing known as the incarnation. Someone has captured it this way, saying, quote, I think the reason for the peculiar glory of the incarnation is that it takes two things of an infinite difference and distance and puts them side by side. The incarnation takes the infinite God and the infinite, or the finite man rather, and unites them together in one magnificent person. And it's the juxtaposition of the majesty of God with the humility of man that renders the glory of Jesus Christ more especially brilliant than all other of God's glorious works. There is a peculiar glory about the Incarnation. Something that, in a sense, makes all the rest of what God has done uh, maybe not quite as brilliant, although we never want to diminish what God has done, but there is something unique about the incarnation, and the fact that Christ has come into this world is a monumental reality, and we never grow weary of hearing of this glorious reality. So what I want to do this morning and next Sunday is I want to take you into maybe what was the sense of those who are anticipating the arrival of our Savior. I want to take you into the Old Testament. And a few people this week thought it would be helpful if we went back to the Old Testament and looked at how it pointed to the arrival of Christ. You know, we're, we're familiar with the incarnation. We who lived 2,000 years after it happened. We have the privilege of looking back. We get to look back and see what happened, and we have four Gospels and historical accounts that tell us what took place when Christ came into this world, and we have the epistles and the rest of the New Testament that that fills that out for us. And so we have the privilege and we have the benefit of looking back at the coming of God in the form of a baby and his life and his death and his resurrection. And because of that, It's easy for us to forget that for 4,000 years, people were looking forward to it. People were anticipating it. Saints in the Old Testament were, were longing for his arrival. For four millennia, they were anticipating it, looking forward to it, expecting it. And so Jesus didn't just arrive on the scene 2,000 years ago out of nowhere. He, he came having been the fulfillment of, of all that took place in the Old Testament. All the statements given, the Christmas story begins there, much earlier than the actual 
birth of Christ. It's because Christ is the theme of the Old Testament. Christ is the overarching theme from Genesis to Malachi. It's not a bunch of just haphazard stories strung together with Jesus showing up in the New Testament. The Old Testament is the story of the preparation for his arrival. Someone has well said that the Old Testament is a hall of mirrors reflecting Christ. And that's true. His arrival on this planet 2,000 years ago was not some divine plan B, as if God was trying to come up with a plan in the Old Testament to redeem sinners and to rescue sinners, and that failed. And so God had to throw together a quick plan in the New Testament to, to figure out something else to rescue humanity. That's not how it worked. No, this was God's plan all along from eternity past. It was always to send a redeemer and a rescuer, a savior, the Messiah. And so that's why we see in the Old Testament, prophecy after prophecy, and anticipation after anticipation, and sign and symbol pointing ahead to the fact that the Messiah was going to come. Conservative estimates put the number of prophecies about his arrival at 332, with some thinking there may have been up to 450 prophecies in the Old Testament anticipating the arrival of Christ. This is what the author of Hebrews spoke of. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. The writer of Hebrews says that God spoke in the Old Testament in many portions and in many ways. God used a number of different vehicles and means by which he announced the arrival of the Savior. He spoke in many portions, meaning in different locations, in different cultures, and over different historical situations, using 39 books over the course of nearly 1,500 years. Sometimes he spoke through narrative, sometimes through law, sometimes through prophecy, sometimes through poetry. And the writer of Hebrews also says that God spoke to them in many ways. He, he used words at times, and sometimes he used symbols and types and ceremonies and visions and dreams, and all of this was part of the, the, the ways in which God spoke about the coming of Messiah. And so what you have in the Old Testament is what we call the progress of revelation. It's like a puzzle. Those of you who love puzzles know that there's a picture at the end. You're, you're looking forward to the completed project where you can see the finished work and you can see that picture that's supposed to match what's on the box cover. And all along in that process, you're putting more pieces in place and you start with the edges, which is the cardinal rule of puzzle making. You always start with the edges. And then you fill in the pieces and then at the end, it makes this beautiful picture that you've been anticipating. That's what the Old Testament is. It's a filling in of the picture. 
And the full picture comes when Jesus arrives in the New Testament, but all in the Old Testament, you have the edges being put into place and you have more pieces being put in place. We call this progressive revelation, which is a way of saying that as you go through the Old Testament, you're getting more information and you're getting more pieces of the puzzle and you're getting a fuller picture as you progress from Genesis to Malachi. All of this was building and stitching together what is known as the scarlet thread through the Old Testament. The one dominant theme running through the Old Testament is there is a Messiah coming. 4,000 years of slowly filling in this picture. This is what the prophets spoke about in the Old Testament. This is largely what consumed their their ministry, this is largely what characterized their prophetic announcements. It was the preparation for Christ in his coming. And what is most interesting to me is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Peter says that the Old Testament prophets were those who were speaking of the arrival of Christ and anticipating the arrival of Christ. And as they wrote, they were actually making careful search and inquiry of the things that they were writing about trying to understand and trying to wrap their minds around all that they were writing about. Now listen very carefully. Many people think that the prophets wrote better than they knew. Many people believe that the prophets were writing things that they couldn't even really understand at all, and I don't believe that's the case at all. I believe the prophets knew exactly what they were writing about. And I believe that the prophets wrote better than we give them credit for. They knew who they were writing about. They knew who they were speaking about. They know who was coming. They know who was on the way. They knew that the Messiah was part of God's promised plan to deliver humanity from their sin. The only thing they didn't understand, listen, the only thing they didn't clearly understand was who he was and when he'd show up. That's what Peter says. They were searching, seeking to know what person and time, or what time and circumstances. Those are the only two things the prophets didn't know specifically, who he was and when he would appear. They knew he would suffer. They knew that there would be glories to follow him. They understood these things. They predicted all of that. The only thing they didn't fully know was the time and the circumstances so what you have in the Old Testament is one giant arrow pointing ahead to the coming of Messiah. And what I want to do today and next Sunday is I, I want to take you back there. And I want to show you how, as an Old Testament saint, you would have been anticipating the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking about how to do this. Let's say there's 400 prophecies. That's about 30 seconds per prophecy. That's not going to happen. So I was wrestling through, how, how do you do this in a way that, that you 
capture the essence of it without getting bogged down in the details. And so I was thinking about what Jesus said after his resurrection. You remember he's on the road to Emmaus. And there are two disciples that are with him on the road to Emmaus, and they've witnessed the events in Jerusalem, and they've seen Christ crucified, and they've heard now about his resurrection, and they're walking on their way, and they're trying to sort these things out in their minds, and they're trying to figure out what, what happened. And Jesus comes up and stands next to them and walks with them and says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then Luke adds this in verse 27, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all of scripture. They're walking along the road and they're puzzled. And Jesus comes in the midst of them and walks with them and and knows they're confused. And so where does he go to help them understand who he was and how all this has happened? He goes to two places in particular, the law and the prophets. And so that's what I want to do. Today I want to take you to the law. And next Sunday I want to take you to the prophets. And I want you to see how. As an Old Testament saint, you would have known exactly what you were to be looking for, not in specific detail, but you would have known what you were to be looking for. So I want to do something a little bit different with you this morning and next Sunday. I want to take you into the Old Testament. We're not going to look at one specific text, but we are going to go to a number of texts. So you're going to have to get your fingers ready, and we're going to have to go, first of all, to Genesis chapter 3. So I'm going to give you seven passages this morning. We're going to look just in the law we're going to look just in the five, first five books of the Bible. We're going to look just as Moses is writing the Torah, the Pentateuch, just these first initial five books of the Old Testament. And I want to build for you a case this morning from the law that a Messiah would come. So stop number one on our journey through these first five books is going to take us to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You know this account very well. You know what took place in the garden. God created everything in six days, and he created Adam and Eve and put them there in the garden on the sixth day. Must have been a beautiful place. Animals, birds, fruit hanging off trees, They could commune with God. There was no sin. Must have been a marvelous place for them to be and to dwell for a time. You remember there were two important trees in the garden. One was the tree of life and the other the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God gave them a test. You remember the test, of course, was to not to eat from the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were forbidden from eating from that. And the reason for that is because if God had not given them the ability to exercise their will, then obeying God would have been coerced. They were perfect, but they were untested. They were without sin, but they were in a state of unconfirmed holiness. Their allegiance to God needed to be tested. 
lest they be considered robots who are just forced to obey God and forced to worship God. And so God instituted a test. Of course, the test was to not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had a choice. And so you know the story. They disobeyed. They ate from the fruit of that tree. They trusted the word of the serpent rather than the word of God. They had everything in the world, but they still rebelled against God. Remember, God confronted them. What did you do, Adam? And you remember his response, I didn't do it, she did it. And she said, it wasn't me, it was the snake. This is blame shifting, this is what sin does. Sin always causes us to blame shift. It always causes us to seek to justify itself and to mitigate its culpability. And so this is what they're doing in that moment. They're trying to shift the responsibility for that sin. And then you remember God pronounced the condemnation upon Adam and Eve and the serpent and Satan. And all of this takes place in Genesis chapter 3. Notice, first of all, verse 14, God's curse on the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. The first curse is pronounced upon the serpent who became the vehicle for Satan to accomplish his wicked temptation. And then the next verse. You know it well. This is the the verse we want to camp on here for just a few moments this morning. Verse 15. This is the curse on Satan himself. And God says to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. God, speaking to Satan, pronounces a curse, a condemnation on Satan for his work in introducing sin into the human race. And this curse specifically is... God saying, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And the question in our minds is, who's the seed of Eve? Between the seed of the devil and between the seed of Eve, who is the seed of Eve? Notice the very next word in verse 15. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now we know that this this seed is an individual, and this seed is a man. God calls him he, and him, and this individual will inflict a mortal wound upon the head of Satan. Satan's going to bring a wound to Christ. This is who we're speaking of, of course, here. He's going to bruise him on the heel, but, but God says that Christ, the Messiah, will bruise Satan on his head. That is a reference to a, a mortal blow that, that the Messiah would inflict upon Satan himself. And so what you have here is a, the very first statement in Scripture about the fact that there is one coming, a Messiah, one who will come to undo the sin of the world and the one who would crush the head of Satan, removing his rule over man. This is known as the Proto-Euangelion, Proto-First-Euangelion Gospel. This is the first gospel. 
This is the very first time the gospel is mentioned in the Old Testament, and it's fuzzy. It's not clear yet. We don't have all the details. It's still early on. The puzzle's just beginning to be formed, but here, only three chapters into the Old Testament, you have now a description of a figure, an individual, a Messiah who is on his way, and he will crush Satan's empire and establish a kingdom on earth that will extend into eternity. It's tremendous. Chapter 1, creation, and chapter 2, description of creation. Chapter 3, the fall, and then immediately upon the heels of the fall is the description of what God is going to do to remedy mankind's greatest problem. You say, do you think Adam and Eve understood this was a messianic prediction? I think so. I think they understood. I think they knew that this figure, this seed of Eve, this individual, this man would be the Messiah. And I think they probably had a pretty clear picture of the fact that this individual would come and undo what Satan did and bring hope to the human race. Did they know all the details and nuances? Of course not. But they knew that this was a Messiah, the snake crusher, who would come and Bring redemption to God's people. This is where it starts. This is where the story of redemption begins. Immediately after the fall of mankind into sin. Let me give you the second one. Second stop on our way. Number two is Genesis chapter 12. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. We come to the Second stop on our journey through the Pentateuch where Moses is describing for us glimpses of the Messiah. We come to the next one in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 to 3. And you know this, of course, to be the Abrahamic covenant. And you'll understand that having come through the first chapter, 11 chapters of Genesis, things look pretty bleak at this point. There's been a a fall into sin by the human race There's been a murder. There's been death. There's been a global flood. There's been a tower of Babel. So as you come to the end of Genesis chapter 11, it's the sin of mankind, which is the major obstacle to God's kingdom program. How's God going to remedy this? How's God going to deal with this situation? Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, the Abrahamic covenant. Look what God says. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's an unconditional covenant made from God to Abram, promising three things. I want you to notice what those three things are. First is land in verse 1, then a seed in verse 2, then blessings in verse 3. Three things he promises, land, seed, blessings, or if you like acronyms, boundaries, Babies and blessings. 
three things that are bound up in this Abrahamic covenant. Notice the land promise, first verse 1. He says, the Lord says to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. God says to Abram, by the way, he has no land because he's fled his land. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you territory to call your own. You're going to be the owners of the land of Canaan. And then notice verse 2. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you will be a blessing. Here's the second promise. First promise is land. Second promise is seed. There's going to be a, a... a progeny that comes from you. There's going to be many people. There's going to be so many people. Genesis chapter 13 says it's going to be like the dust of the earth. There's going to be so many descendants that you have, Abram, that it's going to be innumerable. You're not going to be able to count them. Your descendants will not be able to be numbered. By the way, when God says this, how many children does he have? Zero. And when God changes his name to Abraham, meaning the father of nations, he also doesn't have children. It's an amazing promise. So he promises him land. He promises him seed. Then thirdly, he promises him blessings. Notice verse 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham's going to be blessed. He's going to be the father of many nations. He's going to have many descendants. And then God says in verse 3, not only are you going to be blessed, Abraham, but the world is going to be blessed through you. And this is the part I want you to understand as it relates to what we're talking about. Verse 3, he says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is a messianic promise. That is a, a promise of the fact that all the families of the earth are somehow going to be blessed to some degree by what's going to happen through Abraham and through his nation and through his people and through those who come from him. He's going to be a conduit of God's blessing. He's going to be the channel through which God's blessings come to this world. And he's saying that out of your loins are going to come an entire nation. And it's through this nation that this blessing is going to come. And it's going to come in the form of a king. Let me show you a couple other passages. This is still under the second uh, principle here. Turn over to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, verse 6. I want you to see that as God restates this covenant with Abraham, I want you to notice that what is promised to him. Genesis 17, verse 6 He says, I have made you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Skip down to verse 16, same thing. I will bless her, and indeed I will give give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations, and kings of peoples will come from her. That tells us something. God chooses 
Abraham, says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and from you are going to come many people, and some of those people are going to be kings. Pointing ultimately, well, immediately to David and his kingship, but ultimately to the one true king, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who will be the king come in the line of Abraham, through whom all the blessings of the promise of this covenant will come. So do you see what's happening? We're just a few chapters into Genesis. And number one, Genesis chapter three, there is a promise that there is going to be a seed of Eve who comes to crush the head of Satan. And in Genesis chapter 12, we find out a little bit more about this person. He's likely going to be a king in the line of Abraham from his people as part of his great nation, the Israelites. More pieces to the puzzle. The picture's starting to fill out. Let me take you to a third stop on our survey of the law. Go to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. And what is taking place here in Genesis chapter 49 is that Jacob is about to die. He is near the end of his life. He understands that his time is short, and as he comes close to death, he brings his children together, his 12 sons. And he says something to each one of them. He issues to each one of them a a statement about their future. He begins to describe what they're going to be like. He pronounces some sort of prophetic statement about who they're going to be, what their progeny is going to be like, what the future of that tribe is going to be. Notice the first statement in verse 1 and 2, Genesis 49. It says that Jacob summoned his sons and said to them, assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. He says, listen, come to me. I'm about to die, and there's some things that I need to say to each one of you sons. First one, Reuben, the oldest son. Verses 3 and 4, he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up to my couch. God says to Reuben, you're, you're not going to be the one that the blessing comes from because you defiled my bed. Hold your finger here in Genesis 49. Go back to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35, just we'll look at this briefly and then go back to Genesis 49. Genesis 35, verse 22. It says, it came about that while Israel was dwelling in that land, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Reuben slept with his father's concubine, which made him no longer eligible to receive the birthright, the promise that the Messiah would come through one of the children of Jacob. So he's out. 
Come over to chapter 49 again, then look at verses 5 to 7, because you have the next two group of brothers, Simeon and Levi, they're the next ones addressed by Jacob. Verse 5, he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let them, my soul, rather not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Jacob says, you two are out. And they're out because of what they did to avenge their sister's rape. Remember Dinah was raped by a man named Shechem. And to avenge that whole situation, Simeon and Levi got Shechem and his friends in their city together and convinced all the men that they needed to circumcise themselves. And on the third day after healing from that, they went out and slew all of those men, including Shechem and his father. They took out their revenge on him by killing them and the rest of the men of the city. So they're out. They're men of bloodshed. Come down to verses 8 and 9. He speaks now to Judah. Notice what Jacob says to Judah in verse 8. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who dares rouse him up. God, through Jacob, speaks to Judah and says, you're a lion." And lions are symbols of royalty in the Old Testament. And so now you have a statement of Judah that, that he is going to be of this royal line. Three times in verse 9, it speaks of him and his descendants being a lion. Then verse 10. Here's where I want you to focus. Jacob says to Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Interesting. Judah is told by Jacob that the the scepter shall not depart from him, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Speaking of kingship and royalty, there's a a mention here of a, a king who's coming through the line of Jacob, and his name ultimately is Shiloh. Verse 10, until he comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Very important verse. Some consider this verse right here, Genesis 49, verse 10, the very first explicit messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. Coming through the line of Judah, there would be a kingly ruler speaking in the close term about David, the greatest of all of Israel's kings, but speaking even more beyond that to Christ, the Messiah, the ultimate king of Israel. He would have a scepter. He would have a ruler's staff, the implements of a king, and he would come out of the lion-like tribe of Judah. Remember what John says in Revelation 5, 5, he would be called the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's tremendous. Then notice verses 11 and 12. 
still speaking to Judah, notice what Judah is told about the prosperity of the kingdom of this king and the material blessings and the bounty that comes with this king's kingdom. Notice verse 11, he says he ties his full. Speaking of this Shiloh person, this Messiah person, he ties his full to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. What is that? Speaking of the bounty of this king's kingdom. To the degree that he, this Messiah, ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Saying that vines will be so common in the messianic kingdom that you'll tie your donkey to them. And, he says, he washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Wine will be so prevalent in that day that you can wash your clothes in them. And then notice the last thing he says, his teeth are white from milk. There'll be so much milk, so much bounty that everyone's teeth will be brilliant white. That's why you should drink your cup of milk every day. Does the body good. So you see a picture that's emerging? Genesis 3 tells us there's going to be a seed of Eve. And he's going to crush the head of this Satan. And then in Genesis chapter 11, we, we learn that he's going to come through the line of Abraham. And he's going to be part of the means by which God blesses all the nations of the earth. And he's likely himself going to be a king. And now here in Genesis chapter 49, that fact is confirmed that he is going to be a king because he has a scepter. And his name is Shiloh, and he's going to rule with power and authority, and the kingdom that he brings in will be a wonderful, glorious kingdom that will result in bounty and in prevalence of all kinds of abundant, prosperous resources. We're not even out of the book of Genesis. A scarlet thread that is being woven from the very beginning of the book of Genesis, from the writings of Moses, he's very clear. And what he's doing here is he was narrowing the line from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Jacob to Judah. The line's getting narrower and narrower and narrower, and it's becoming increasingly clear who this Messiah is going to be and where he's going to come from. Let me show you the next one. Number four. Stop number four on our survey of... Moses is writing. You need to go to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. You remember what is taking place here? Israel is being brought out of the land of Egypt through a series of plagues. God is bringing plagues upon the Egyptians to force Pharaoh to let God's people go. By the way, each one of those plagues represents an Egyptian God. God is using the plagues to demonstrate the fact that he is sovereign even over these Egyptian gods. And you remember the last plague, the plague of the firstborn son. Pick up the story in Exodus chapter 12 verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month 
shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. So here they've come out of the land, and now God says to them, listen, they're almost ready to come out of the land, and God says to them, this is going to be the first month in your calendar, Israel. And here's what I want you to do. Verse 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the 10th of the month, They are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. And your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old, and you will make it, take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. God says, on the tenth day of this month, you all need to go get a lamb. A perfect, male, unblemished lamb. And bring it into your house. And let it be with you for four days. And then at midnight on that last day, you're to kill it. Actually at twilight, you're to kill that lamb. And what were they to do with the blood? Notice verse 7. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire, and they will eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with the water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. God says you kill that animal and then you sprinkle some of the blood on the doorposts and the lintels of your houses and then you eat that lamb. Why? Notice verse 12, 4, here's the reason. I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God says, when I see the blood on your doorposts, I will pass over that house. And you will not experience my wrath. It's a type. Do you know what a type is? A type is an Old Testament event or an Old Testament situation or symbol or person that looks ahead to a New Testament person. It's an Old Testament reality, an actual event that provides a fuzzy picture of something else. The Old Testament type is a shadow of the New Testament anti-type. Here's this event, this event known as the Passover. 
And it points to something else. It points, we know, to Christ. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul calls Christ our Passover. Christ would be the fulfillment of this type. And he himself would be the one means by which God's wrath would pass over us in our sin by what he accomplished on the cross. And so what you see here is a a picture all pointing to Christ. He is the Passover lamb. The picture is getting fuller. There's more pieces being added to the puzzle. Stop number five. Leviticus chapter 16. You knew we couldn't avoid Leviticus, right? Leviticus chapter 16, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You could actually go almost through the whole book of Leviticus Leviticus, and find statements about how Christ would be the fulfillment of this. But we're just going to pick one this morning. Leviticus chapter 16, speaking of the Day of Atonement, that one day a year that Israel was to set aside to make atonement for sin, and very interesting, what they were to do at this day of atonement were to take two goats. The priest was to take two goats. One is the sacrificial goat, and the other known as the scapegoat. Notice verse 5. Aaron shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering, and Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and his household. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of the meeting. And he shall cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and make it a sin offering. Goat number one gets sacrificed for the sin of Aaron and his household and the people. What happens to goat number two? Verse 10. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Skip down to verse 20. And when he finishes atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall offer the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. A scapegoat. The priest was to lay his hands on that goat, signifying the transfer of all the sins of the nation of Israel onto that goat, send it off into the wilderness, picturing the kind of taking away of sin that needed to take place. It's another type. It's another type pointing ahead to Christ who would be both the sacrificial lamb and the lamb that brings expiation. You know expiation is the theological term that speaks of our removal of our sin. So not only does Christ bring the sacrifice by which our sin is dealt with, he also is the scapegoat by which our sin is removed and taken away from us. You see the picture that's emerging? Genesis 3 says he's going to be a seed of Eve. 
Genesis 12 tells us it's going to come through Abraham's line. Genesis 49 tells us it's going to come specifically through the line of Judah, and he's going to be a king. Exodus 12 says there's going to be a sacrifice required. Leviticus 16 also speaks of a sacrifice that is going to be required, and a scapegoat. You see the pieces coming together? Stop number six. Two more. Go to Numbers 24. Numbers 24. I think this is one of the most intriguing messianic prophecies in the law. It's the story of Balaam. Remember his donkey spoke to him? That's weird. Israel is camped in the plains of Moab. Balak is the king of Moab, and Balak is afraid of Israel and what Israel is going to do to his country. So Balak, the king of Moab, hires Balaam, a pagan prophet from Mesopotamia, to speak curses against Israel. So you got a pagan king hiring a pagan prophet to curse the Israelites. And Balaam goes to do that. And of course, God's going to overrule that. And Balaam actually ends up speaking blessings upon the nation of Israel. Four times he does it. And then in the fourth time, he says something profound. Numbers 24, verse 15. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, And the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. Now here it is, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. He's saying, In my vision and in my prophecy, I'm looking ahead and I'm seeing someone. I'm seeing him. But he's not close. He's far off, which in his mind, he was correct because here he is 1,400 years before the birth of the Messiah. And he knows Messiah is not coming quickly. He knows that he's a ways off. That's what he sees. Not now and not near, but I see him. Notice the rest of his description. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and he shall crush through the head of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. What did Balaam see? Messiah? One who would be the star from Jacob, the the scepter rising from Israel, speaking of the fact that he's going to be a king and he's going to come and he's going to establish his kingdom. And when he does, verse 17 says he's going to crush his enemies. Prophecy would find its initial fulfillment in David, but again, it's the ultimate David that Balaam sees, the Messiah. You see the picture? It's filling in. Genesis 3 tells us it's going to be the line of Eve, the seed of Eve. 
Genesis 12 tells us it's going to be from Abraham, through which all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Genesis 49 tells us that it's going to be from Judah in particular, and it's going to be from him that a king is going to come. Exodus 12 says he's going to have to be sacrificed. Leviticus chapter 16 tells us he's also going to be the scapegoat. And now we learn from Numbers 24 that he's also going to be a king who will crush his enemies. One more. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, our final stop on this journey through the Pentateuch, looking at these predictions of a coming Messiah. Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses is speaking about the office of the prophet, telling us, exactly what a true prophet is like and explaining how false prophets are to be forbidden. Notice verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. A prophet. A prophet like Moses would Come through the line of Israel. Skip down to verse 18. He says the same thing. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It's a messianic prediction. There's one coming who's going to be a prophet. And as a prophet, he's going to speak forth the words of God. Priests represent man to God. Prophets represent God to men. And Moses looks ahead to the time when he sees the ultimate prophet. The true prophet who will preach divine revelation from the words of of God's mouth. It's Christ. So there you have seven stops along the way in Moses' writings that clearly point to a Messiah. That's only five chapters in. There's predictions in the Psalms And there's predictions in the prophets. And what I want you to sense is the fact that the Christmas story begins way earlier than Luke 2. It starts on just a few days after creation finishes. Goes all the way through the Old Testament. And there is built within Old Testament saints an anticipation. Like Anna. And like Simeon, who were longing for this Messiah to come, which they clearly understood Moses speaking about. And we need to let this truth sink into our hearts. That that baby, born in Bethlehem to a young teenage couple, is the full and final fulfillment of all that was spoken in the Old Testament. Absolutely tremendous. 
And that's why there is a peculiar glory to the incarnation. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that your scriptures speak so clearly to the fact that a Messiah was coming. And he would come to rescue his people. He would be a king. He would be in the line of Judah. He would be from Abraham. He would be a prophet. And Lord, so when he arrives, there's no doubt as to who he is. We thank you for these clear expectations. We thank you for these clear anticipations. We thank you that your Old Testament abundantly describes this coming King. So Lord, may we celebrate this fact. May we rejoice in this. May we respond in wonder and love and praise to the fact that the Messiah, the Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Rescuer, has come in fulfillment of all that you said. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.